0: So once again, as Pastor Shane said, we are glad that you joined us on this Memorial Day weekend to worship. And in this same spirit of remembrance that Pastor Shane just took us through, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes for a few moments. And don't be afraid, we're not going to rush you or attack you or pull a quick one on you by any means, but just close your eyes. And I want you to think about the greatest thing to ever happen to you the absolute greatest thing to ever happen to you. You can go ahead and open your eyes. If you're like me, there's Perhaps a couple of things that came to your mind. Of course, we're in church this morning, so the spiritual answer is to say Jesus, right? I've never accepted Jesus into my heart and life whenever I began to follow him, and all the super spiritual people say, yeah, you're supposed to choose C for Jesus, right? That's the correct answer. But perhaps there are some other things that came to our mind. Perhaps it's graduating high school, graduating college, getting married, having kids, I know among the handful of things that came to my mind, I thought about getting engaged to my wife and also marrying Elle. I remember that day at the Cap Rock. it was the summer of 2019, and I was waiting for Elle to arrive. The sun was setting, and whenever she got there, I got down on one knee and asked her to marry me. And the thing about the next summer, whenever I was standing up there in front of the church, right, and waiting for the doors to open as my bride-to-be would walk in, and we'd be married. So these thoughts come through, and perhaps some of the most popular things, most of the most common things that come to our mind, and everything about the most important things to happen to us deals with love and romance. If you think about it, love and romance preoccupies a lot of our conversations, a lot of our time. We scroll on Facebook and Instagram, and we look at the headlines to see who's dating who, who just broke up with who, who's getting married, I go back to a time in college, whenever I was studying engineering, and engineering and Lance were just not a good match, you hear me? That numbers didn't like me, I didn't like them, I was kind of felt cold, lifeless, and dead inside, a little bit depressed at the time. And after I had finished all my calculus homework, I said, Lance, I need to get away, get my mind off of things and spend some time doing something else. So what do I do? I go through my sister's old movie stash, and I find this movie and put it in, and lo and behold, it is a romance. And I'm like, oh, brother, I'm going to have to switch movies, right? I'm going to have to find something else to watch. But very quickly, I'm hooked into this movie. And there's this guy and girl that they go through the highs and lows of romance, and there's this scene where it's raining, and they're arguing and fighting, and the next moment they're kissing, and they're like, oh, my gosh. And then, happily ever after, they end up getting married. And the movie closes with the two that they've gotten old together, they've grown old together, and the lady, the wife, has dementia. And here is the guy with this notebook that he reads day after day to her to remind her of their love story, of their story. So here's Lance, he's crying on the couch. right At first he didn't want to watch this movie, and now I have to run over there and close the blinds because I don't want to have anyone see me crying at this romance movie because I'm tougher than that. But it struck deep in my heart this story of love and romance. And this brings us to where we are going to be at today in Scripture. If you'll go to Psalm 45 if you're not already there. And this psalm is entitled A Royal Wedding Song. It's a love story. And we see perhaps 3,000 years ago, scholars believe that this psalm was written for a royal wedding. Perhaps David or Solomon A remarkable king, a remarkable man getting married. Yet we're going to see this psalm actually has a higher purpose and it appeals about a higher groom. We're going to see that this psalm is dominated by Jesus Christ and that he is the ultimate groom. You see I first read through this psalm and I kind of breezed through it and I said okay it's a love story that's kind of interesting I'm ready to get back to those imprecatory psalms right those interestingly violent psalms of David that says break the jawbone of my enemy oh god and you're just kind of like whoa this is in the bible this is weird but kind of cool but then I decided to linger in this psalm to find the meaning find the purpose and I was taken away by the beauty and what's to be found in this psalm. So I'm going to read for us, picking up in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All-glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So as we dive into this psalm, we're going to use an acronym to help us organize what we're going to be looking at today, and this acronym is Groom. And I know you're going to notice it has an extra M at the end. You're going to have to forgive me. I went to school in New Mexico, right? I didn't go to school here in Texas. And then even worse, I went to WT, right? in my a buffalo. So spelling and everything like that might not be my strongest suit, but it's going to help us in the end. So verse 2, we see the greatness of Christ, Christ's excellency. I remember waking up on my wedding day and going to the mirror And what I saw in the mirror would have been a horror story for a bride, right? But just being a dude, it was kind of irritating, kind of aggravating. There was this monster pimple on the right side of my nose. And I remember asking my mom about it and a few others. And they're like, oh, it's okay. You can just put some makeup on it, right? Just put some makeup. Nobody will ever get close enough to actually notice. And I'm like, heck, no, definitely not. I am not wearing makeup on my wedding day. I don't care if anyone would notice or not. And I know I wanted to have my arms look a little bit bigger than they actually are, so I kind of stood there at the front of the church and had to make sure my suit jacket was a little bit puffed out, it looked a little bit more broad, and held my arms like this in front of my family and friends. And there during my vows, even though I was confident and assured in that decision, I was stammering and stumbling through them. So in contrast to the groom that I was on that day, we see a glorious, excellent groom This groom is glorious and wonderful, altogether handsome, and yet he is the fullest of handsome and excellency that we could ever find in a groom. Yet we see this excellency doesn't come from his physical form. This is what Isaiah 53 verse 2 says about Christ. He grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, nor appearance that we should desire him. No, we're going to find his excellency, his handsomeness, far transcends beyond something that's here one day in the flesh and will perish the next. No, his eternal attributes and character is Christ's Excellency and his handsomeness. We see in John chapter 1 all things beautiful, all things lovely that we could ever find and see. You think about the most beautiful sunrise, the most beautiful sunset, you think about the beautiful places around the world and man and woman who are made in his image. All these things were made through Christ, is what we find in these scriptures. He's the very source of beauty and excellence and majesty, and he is infinite overflowing with this greatness. And we see also here that grace flows from his lips. Luke 4, says about Jesus, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Did you catch that? They're saying, Is this not Joseph's son? We know Joseph. Yet this man, he speaks grace pouring from his lips. Here's a quote by George Horn. His word, Jesus' word, instructed the ignorant, resolved the doubtful, comforted the mourners, reclaimed the wicked, silenced adversaries, healed diseases, controlled the elements, and raised the dead. Yes, indeed, these were grace-filled lips. Moving on into verses 6 and 7, we're going to skip to 6 and 7. We're going to talk about the rule of Christ, his righteous rule and reign. Now I know that we can get on board with this point, since there'll be probably a few people amening at this, but we live in a world with governments and rulers that are flawed and imperfect. Can I get an amen? amen? So we live in this world where our governments and those rulers, they're flawed, They're in this broken world, yet we see this contrast of God's rule, God's reign, that he perfectly reigns forever and ever, and he reigns in truth and in justice, and it's not that God just wrote the book on truth and justice. No, he is the book on truth and justice. Christ is the very source of truth and justice, Whenever we set up governments and rulers step in, they might try to bottle up truth and justice or try to mimic it or model it in different rules and regulations that they put over the land, but Christ himself is the very source and the very essence. And we see in these scriptures, we're given certainty that this psalm is ultimately about Jesus. I'm going to read Hebrews 1, verses 8 through 10. But of the Son... God the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And we stop and say, wait a second. Hugh the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man meme. Didn't we just hear that in this psalm that we just read, Psalm 45? And we're told here, we find here, that what's recorded in Psalm 45 is actually communication within the Trinity, God the Father speaking God to Son, God speaking to God and telling him that his rule will remain forever and ever. Don't you see that this psalm transcends just a simple wedding song written 3,000 years ago about a ruler? No, we see the sun reigns on high in perfect truth and justice. Going back to verses 3 through 5, we find the overcoming by Christ. We see that this groom is a man of war. He's a warrior, and he comes because he means business. That he rides out from his royal palace with a purpose, and it's to raid, wage war. Now, I thought about continuing the comparison of myself as groom versus this royal groom that we see in this psalm. But I'm a youth pastor, y'all. I'm not going to sit up here and try to explain how I'm a warrior, or how in some way I feel like I have a sword girded on my thigh. No, as all of these attributes, Christ is not only out of my league, but out of all of our leagues, and infinitely greater, infinitely higher, and infinitely more glorious. That we see this groom wages war that flows forth from truth, humility, and righteousness, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. This is John the disciple's revelation from heaven, and he is describing what he sees. He sees Jesus in this verse. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Wow, what a glorious warrior. What a glorious king. Yet, yeah, I want to hit on this focus that he rides out in humility. What does that mean that he still rides out in humility? Well, you see here, Jesus was never behind the aid ball. He was never actually losing at any point himself that he has always and forever been at the right-hand side of the Father, preeminent, first place in all things and through all things. Yet, because of his humility, He stepped down from heaven to live among sinful mankind, among us, that he would be scorned and despised and ejected and beaten and crucified, but that he would rise on the third day for you and for me. You see, he took our place. He bore our punishments and shame, and he pushed darkness back because he had you and I in mind, because he loved us. We also find his arrows are sharp. Aren't you thankful that every arrow in his quiver is sharp? And they pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Yeah, we're going to see these arrows not only just eliminate the king's enemies, but these arrows can actually come and pierce hearts for a good and constructive purpose. I go to Acts chapter 2 whenever peter is giving his sermon on the day of pentecost led by the holy spirit and after he's preached to the crowd this is what acts 2:37 says when they heard this they were pierced into heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what should we do did you catch that the crowd were pierced to the heart by the words that Peter preached, led by the Holy Spirit. And afterwards, after being pierced to the hearts, that day, 3,000 were saved. How powerful that this king's arrows are sharp, and they accomplished their purposes. Verses 8 and 9, the overwhelming riches of Christ. I'm going to be honest, y'all. Summer of 2020, whenever Elle and I got married, I was finishing the last year of college, so I was working through college and I was working as many hours as possible but my hourly wage was kind of meager so I was doing what I could. My parents were gracious and they allowed us to live in a house that they owned here in Canyon while I was finishing off school. Yet still, Elle and I would go to the grocery store and we'd be picking up all the great value items. You hear me? That We were picking up all the great value items knowing that's, that that is what we had to buy to stay under budget. Now this groom, this king, he is loaded, right? That not only all things in heaven and earth belong to him, but this is what Psalm 50 says. His are the cattle on a thousand hills. I didn't even have a cow, but this groom, he has cattle on a thousand hills. And we think about this, and even his presence is richness, we think about heaven. We talk about the streets that will be paved in gold, and we'll talk about the mansions that we'll live in. But we have to remind ourselves that the real treasure of heaven will be Him. We'll be being in His presence unhindered forever. Returning back to His humility, though, you see, this king is humble, this groom is humble. And we look how we compare to David in the Bible. We think about King David whenever he was a ruler and the kingdom belongs to him. But you see, King David began as just David the shepherd boy. Nothing to his name. He was tending his father's flocks. Yet, because of God's grace and mercy, David became a king and was given these riches. And in a similar way, yet very different, we come into this world with literally nothing no titles, no accolades. No possessions, nothing. But God, as we live our lives towards eternity, richly clothes us and richly provides for us. Yet this king, this groom, doesn't provide for us things that moths will destroy or that will waste away and perish, but this king is providing for us treasures that will last for eternity. Perhaps unseen treasures now, but nonetheless riches that will last forever. This king has perfumed garments. This is pretty simple. Ladies, do you like a guy that smells good? Do you like a guy that perhaps has showered in the past 48 hours and might put a, some deodorant on and some cologne on? That's probably for the best, right? And we see that this groom smells nice. You see that this groom, his very presence is pleasant to be around. Jesus is pleasant to be around. At his right hand and in his presence is the fullness of joy. Psalm 16. So we transition to the last two attributes that we're going to look at. And we're shifting our focus to the church, this groom's bride. So we have two M's left. Can you repeat after me? Everybody say, mmm. There we go. That's good. So that is what the bride says whenever she sees this groom. She says, mmm, 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 mmm this is a handsome man, right? This groom right here is pretty excellent, and that's what we find here as we move into verses 10 and 11, and we talk about the movement of this bride towards Christ and her yes. In Genesis chapter 2, we first hear of this concept of leaving and cleaving, That's whenever a bride and a groom get married, they're to leave their mother and their father's house and hold fast to one another. And this is a similar concept we'll find here in this psalm. I'm grateful that Elle and I had a good transition as we left our families and we held fast to another, but we've all heard those stories. Perhaps some of us has lived them and we look back and laugh at them of the newly wed bride getting a flat tire on the side of the road. And... Her husband, newlywed husband, might just be a little ways, a short while away at work that he could come and help her out. But what does this bride do? This bride calls up her dad, right? She calls up dad. She says, hey, dad, I have a flat tire. I need some help. Can you come help me? And a good dad often will say, yeah, for sure. Like, here's some advice. Here's some helpful pointers. But also, I bet you could call your husband, and he would love to come rescue, right? He's going to feel like the hero to swoop in and to fix that flat tire, and we know that transition takes time. But we look at this transition, this invitation that this groom is offering, and he says this, Leave your idols. Leave the past comforts and old behind. Turn away from those things and turn towards a greater pleasure. Come to me. I'll provide for you because I love you. And you can step in to this marriage and feel secure and know that your intense wholehearted devotion to me will not be unsatisfied. You won't regret it. Verses 12 through 15, the marriage with Christ, the union of Christ and his church as they are married. We know little girls, six or seven years old, like to dream of their wedding day, that they'll grab their friends, they'll find something that halfway Resembles a wedding altar, and they'll find some dandelions there, out there in the yard, and they'll make into little bouquet, and they take turns getting married. And this is long before guys stop being smelly and repulsive, right? I was like, they don't like boys, but they're dreaming of this wedding day. They're dreaming of being presented before a king-like suitor, clothed in white, fully loved, fully cherished, and fully known. That's something. Even little girls dream of. And we see in all of us, in all of our hearts, are ingrained this desire to be fully known, fully loved, fully cherished, welcomed in, and accepted. And we find that this king longs to do so. He longs to clothe us in white. He longs to love and cherish us as we agree to be united with him. But here's a tension for you and I. Oftentimes, we feel far from clothed in white. Oftentimes, we feel, even after we've accepted Jesus, we feel like we're dirty. We feel like there's this space where we're unworthy of love. I know those moments of guilt and shame still surface for myself. I know from time to time, whenever we go back to Clovis and we go down Starlight Drive right there by that apartment— there's a part of me that still feels guilty and dirty because I'm reminded of past mistakes. And there's reminders of where I had gone wrong, things that feel unlovable and unworthy. Yet, that's not the reality that we live in whenever we abide and have accepted Christ. There's this reality, whether you feel it, whether I feel it, that we are indeed clothed in white. We are indeed cherished. We are indeed loved. And this king welcomes us in, not because we have a good resume, not because we checked off the right boxes, right? Not because we were good enough, because he was good enough. Because he took that punishment, he took that shame, he took that guilt, he took it upon himself on that cross that would be cast away forevermore as we're presented before God, holy and unblemished because of the blood of the Lamb. You see, the old man is dead. I don't have to live there anymore anymore but he has made me new. He's made me a new creation. His kingship is good, his grace is good, and he is madly in love with me. He is madly in love with you as he welcomes you in arms open wide. Verses 16 and 17. The joyful marriage. With joy and gladness they proceed in marriage. It's not just about the wedding, but it's about stretching on into eternity this happy union You see, this king cherishes his bride, he loves his bride, he actively and continually pursues her, right? He doesn't just chill on the couch and look at fantasy football scores and he's just going through Instagram, Facebook. I'm not hating on anybody because I've been that guy, I've been in that place. But no, this king is actively pursuing his bride and she doesn't have to grumble or complain or feel insecure and ask for more love. This is what Proverbs twenty one nineteen says. It is better to live in a desert land than to live with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. You hear that? That this woman that wants more love, longs for more love, there's no possibility, no chance for that whenever she's looking towards his groom, her groom, because he loves her. It's a pleasure to abide in this loving covenant, and it's because of that love I don't run back to things of old. I don't run back into the ways that Lance used to live because this king loves me, rejoices in me, and his steadfast love is always present with me, and because of that love, I am compelled to honor him. I am compelled by the love of Christ to serve him and to obey him and to walk with him as he leads me from glory to glory. So, at last, I appeal to you with Isaiah 55. Are you hungering and thirsting for a greater love this morning? I'm sure we're all in different places in our lives, that perhaps some of us in here are young and we're infatuated with the idea of love. Perhaps there's some in here that are a little bit older and they feel as if marriage would have been this desire already filled in your life, that that would have already come to pass. And I feel lonely. I feel forgotten and estranged because I'm one of those not yets. Perhaps you're in here and you're imperfectly married. And I'm not saying that there's any perfect marriages, but perhaps in this season, more than any time, your marriage is starting to groan under the weight of sin, starting to groan under the weight of the circumstances of this life and just this broken world that we live in, perhaps you're here and you feel like your marriage is just hanging on by a thread. Perhaps you're in here and you've been separated or divorced in your past. Perhaps you're in here and you've lost a husband or a wife and there's a wound on your heart and on your soul that feels as if it's yet to heal. Well, we have good news for all of us here. That Christ's love satisfies. That he heals. That his invitation is open to all, no matter where we are. And even if we haven't accepted that love and accepted his kingship and accepted Jesus into our hearts, here is the invitation that stands for every single one of us. God specializes. In reaching out to the lonely and the downcast, he reaches out to the outer fringes and those forgotten, and he pulls them near because he's madly in love with you, and his love satisfies. Father, we come before you, and we thank you for this love with which you have loved us. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus, this beautiful, glorious groomsman, that loves us, cherishes us, that he humbled himself to take our place and bear our shame and guilt and sin that way that we could be clothed in whites before you by nothing else than the blood of Christ. I just pray for every single one of our hearts, God, wherever we need your grace and mercy, that you would just pour it out upon us and we would repent and believe that we would turn towards you and may that be a continual process for those who have trusted in you to continually turn away from lesser pleasures, and turn towards the greatest love we could ever imagine. God, work in our hearts, work in our lives. God, we also pray over the community of Valley this week, Father. They're on our minds, they're on our hearts, and I pray that you would draw near to this community just like a husband does. He draws near to a grieving wife. God, comforts those families. Comfort that community as they walk walk in the wake of this tragedy and heartbreak, Lord, that we know that only you can heal and mend and restore, and only you can comfort and provide a love that satisfies. God, we love you, and we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.